Well, good evening. You guys were so good. You guys like moved into my periphery. I don't have to be like this. I appreciate that. Um, well, let us begin this evening in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we give praise and thanksgiving to you for this day, for the beautiful weather outside, for all the many blessings you have given to us in our lives, especially those ones that we don't deserve, and especially those ones that we don't understand or even know are present. We pray that through this class this evening, you may give us a better appreciation for the sacrifice of your son for our sake. Though we, again, do not deserve it, you offer us your love, you offer us your sacrificial love, that we may, in turn, sacrifice all that we have for the greater good. We ask all these things in your Son's name, for he lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. In the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, leading up to this week's class, we've talked about who is God. We've talked about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We've talked about the fall of man. We've talked about the need for redemption. Well, now we get to the good stuff, or as Paul Harvey would say, and now for the rest of the story. So, for the rest of the story, we come today, and we're talking about the promise of redemption, redemption itself, but also a key term that's really popped up in Catholic uh, theology in the last mm, decade or so called the kerygma. Has anybody heard that word before, kerygma? It's spelled K-E-R-Y-G-M-A. Pope Francis, in his first few years as the Pope, really focused on this. And what's interesting is Pope St. John Paul II was really the first one to kind of pull this out and even made it into one of the mysteries of the Luminous Mysteries. Does anybody know what the third mystery of the Luminous Mysteries is? Proclamation of the Gospel. Do you know what the kerygma is? Proclamation of the Gospel. So it's nothing new. We find it in Scripture, but we forget many times that, oh, wait, that's right. We don't just have to know the Gospel we have to proclaim it through our lives. And so the, the charismatic proclamation phrase that we're going to be working with is Jesus Christ loves you, he gave his life to save you, and now he is living at your side every day to enlighten, strengthen, and free you. Let me say that again. Jesus Christ loves you, he gave his life to save you, and now he is living at your side every day to enlighten, strengthen, and free you. So taking this at the heart of the proclamation of the gospel, you, it may begin to make sense as to some of my homilies, why I preach the way that I do. I'm trying to preach this, this proclamation of the gospel. As Jesus said, the greatest of the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love is what? Love. Why? Because that's who God is. As we talked about in that class, that first class we had together when we talked about who is God, God is love. God is sacrificial. God is life-giving. And by Christ's passion, death, and resurrection, the passion being the way to the cross, then the cross itself, burial, and his resurrection, through the passion, death, and resurrection of Christ, we see his ultimate sacrifice, his ultimate act of love. And he even tells us about it time and time again before it happens. And the readings we're going to have actually between now and the first Sunday of Advent, even today's reading from the Gospel of Luke, broke open the idea that we don't know the day or the hour, and that our time is coming. Not to put fear into our hearts, but to remind us why we are here. And what are we here as humans to do? What are we here as humans to be? We are here ultimately to embrace God's love, share it, and return to it. And so how do we proclaim that in our lives? How do we talk about the love of God? For non-Catholics, this is one of the basic tenets of being a non-Catholic Christian. How do I proclaim my witness of the faith? Has anybody ever come to you and said, tell me your witness story? Has anybody ever heard, heard that said before? How many of us as Catholics have been like, I didn't see what happened? What do you mean, show me? Like, like, like when I hear witness as a Catholic, I think, what was the crime? What happened? How do I tell you what was going on? I don't understand. No, our witness is proclaiming ultimately the gospel as it relates to our hearts. So last time I talked a little bit about my own witness, about how I came to the faith, about how even though I'm a cradle Catholic, which means I was born into the faith, baptized within a month of my birth, 
that my personal witness has ups and downs. I've got days that were like that transfiguration mountaintop experience where I never wanted to come down from, and I had days like that valley of the shadow of death that I thought there was no hope. But in the midst of that, when I look at it through the lens of this proclamation of the kerygma, it all begins to make sense. That no matter how good or how bad things are going, Jesus is always at my side. No matter how bad or good things are going, Jesus will never abandon me. He will always give me strength. He will always enlighten me, which means give me the ability to make it through what is going on. Let me see what is going on. The problem, though, and we talked about this three weeks ago, the problem, though, is unless we are intentionally active on it, we struggle to embrace the faith because we don't see how we don't practice the faith. We look at it and say, well, I'm a good person. I haven't killed anybody. I haven't committed adultery. I haven't done this or this or that. So I'm good, right? Well, yes, it's good things that you haven't done that. Yes, I'll start with that. Awesome. But there's a TV show, and I may have mentioned this before, um, called The Good Place that came out, I think it finished its last season last year. You may watch it on, a- on ABC with Kristen Bell and the, the guy with the white hair, I can never remember his name, Ted Danson. Um, Ted Danson and Kristen Bell in, in this TV show. And at the beginning of the TV show, I'm going to ruin it, so spoiler alert if you don't want to listen. But in this TV show, the beginning of the, of the show, she wakes up and realizes she's died. And so she is told, you have ended up in the good place. And what's interesting is only in the first episode of this show, do the words heaven and hell be used? From then on, it's the good place and the bad place. It's interesting that they, that they use that dynamic. She said, well, I'm not good enough for the good place, but I'm not bad enough for the bad place. Why can't I just go to this medium place? In fact, in the show, they had this medium place that one person had snuck away from the, from the bad place to go hide out into. Because to go from the good place to the bad place, after you die, there's a train that gets you there. I don't know. This is their conception of it. But what's interesting is that's sometimes the mentality that we have in 21st century America. I'm not good enough really to go to heaven. I'm not bad enough to go to hell. Can't I just go and be like mediocre? Well, what does Christ say about mediocrity? He says, be either hot or cold, be not lukewarm, or I will spew you from my mouth. That's pretty harsh language, isn't it? Be hot or be cold. Know what you're doing and do it for a purpose. Know what you're doing and do it intentionally. Do everything that you are doing for that purpose. But what is our purpose? Well, I want to have a good job. I want to take care of my family. I want to make sure there's food on the table. I want to have a nice Camaro. If you have a Camaro, I'm not judging you. That's just the first one that comes to my head. I want to have a this, or I want to have a that, or I want to have a this. But then Jesus even says to us again in Scripture 2,000 years ago, What have you really gained if you've gained the whole world but lost your soul? Christ is always trying to get us back to the kerygma, always trying to get us to ask the question, why are we doing what we do? But that's a question that was really hammered out of most of us in grade school. Did anybody ever get in trouble for asking too many questions in class? Me too. To the point of, in seminary, My professor said, Danny, enough. We're never going to be able to move on if you ask all these questions. For me, though, if I don't understand, I can't move on. So we got to the point where they limited me to three questions per class. Anything after that, I had to write my median and then bring to class afterwards. But that's how I grow, by asking questions. What's interesting, though, and frustrating as all get out sometimes, though, is the more questions that I get answered... The more questions I have, anybody else find that true? It gets frustrating. But the reality is I will never have all of my questions answered. That's okay. As long as I get the big ones answered, which for me have been pretty much answered, and it's the big question of why. Why does bad things happen to good people? Why did COVID exist? Why does cancer exist? Why is my shoulder killing me tonight? Why, 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 why? Ultimately, God loves you. Now, some people would, would see that and hear that phrase as, 
that's just a blanket statement that you can just throw out there. And some point of that is true, because some people don't actually believe that God loves me, that God has the best interest for me in place. But I know for myself, after what I've gone through in the last 36 years, that everything that I have witnessed in my life is a representation of God's love to me. It's either me accepting it, me rejecting it, or me not noticing it. That's why in our opening prayer, I made sure that, to give thanks to God for those things that I didn't notice that he gave me today. Because there are so many things that we don't really recognize that he does for us each and every day. How many times in your life, think about it for a moment, how many times in your life have you had that near-death experience, but you were just too late? You were in the right place at the right time, or the wrong place at the right time. Around 9-11, we heard of all of these different stories where my alarm didn't go off, or I was supposed to be here, or my flight got canceled, or that, that's God interacting. Well, why didn't he interact with everybody? Because everybody does have a time. That's not to justify what happened then. But we have to remember that everything we do in this life is for the life to come. That we don't know the day or the hour when the Lord is calling us home which is why we're called to every moment of every day, praise God, embrace God's love, turn from sin, and to really proclaim with our lives, not just with our words, but with our lives that Jesus loves you. Well, why does Jesus love me? Because Jesus is God, okay? Well, why beyond that does he love me? Because he created me. And anything that God creates, he loves. Everything that God creates, he loves. Okay, well, if everything God creates, he loves, why then did I have a miscarriage? Why did he not love that child? Why did this happen to my child in the womb? Just because a bad thing happens doesn't mean God isn't present. We have to remember that. And, and I, I bring up miscarriages because it's, it's one of the taboo subjects in society that nobody talks about, but you would be surprised at the amount of families that have had them and don't know how to process it. In my domestic church circle that I talk about pretty often, we brought it up at one of our classes, and I didn't realize of the seven couples that I was with, five of them had had at least one miscarriage, two of them had had two or more, but they never talked about it. In fact, the first time that my family talked about my mother having a miscarriage was when they finally got the headstone for my dad last December. The younger two knew that something had happened because when you look at um, Rachel's Vineyard actually goes through and goes into some, some of the biology of the generation of children in the womb, that every child after the first child not only has the DNA from mom and dad, but has some of the DNA from the children that were there before them. Did you know that? That's why normally the oldest child, some of the things that are in them will be in the, the children under them. And they will know that they're missing a part of themselves if they came after someone that isn't present. So my younger brother and sister, who were technically number, who were alive, number four and five, they knew that there was something missing. And so we finally had the conversation of, yeah, mom had a miscarriage. Ah, I knew it. But we'd never talked about it. And at that moment, for the first time, we kind of jokingly said, well, let's name our brother or sister. Because you don't know at that point, was it a male or female? It doesn't matter. Child of God. So, us being a Disney family, there's a TV show that came on about 10 years ago called Good Luck Charlie, about this little girl. Well, Charlie's a man's name, Charlie's a female name. Charlie Grover, there we go! And when we were there, we prayed through the intercession of our unborn sibling that he may be welcoming dad into heaven. So powerful. When we look at the goodness of God in the midst of tragedy, that if you've had a miscarriage, if you've had an abortion, God doesn't love you any less. God does still love you. He wants us to repent if we have done something egregious. But Jesus Christ loves you. Notice there is no qualifier to that in, in the charismatic statement. Jesus Christ loves you. No ifs, ands, or buts. How do we then go from Christ loving us to us loving like Christ? Ultimately, it comes from us witnessing to ourselves the love that he has for us. Talking about those good times. Talking about those bad times. 
talking about the moments where we can easily see God present and the moments where we struggle to see God present. In COVID, people are like, man, this is just the worst thing that could ever happen. And yeah, it sucks that we've got it. We got a vaccine within a year. Whether you're an anti-vaxxer or a vaxxer, doesn't matter. That has never been done in the history of humanity. When the Spanish flu broke out, five years, five years before anything came up. We're just too impatient for that. We want to, give me the answer now, we're done. Well, no. But even in the midst of COVID, have you seen how people have returned to the church that haven't been here forever? Have you seen how, for the most part, for the first month or so, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all of the social medias, there were more prayer requests on there? Now it's changed a little bit in the last couple of months because now it's all political again. But before the election, did you notice that there was so much good being done? Masses being live streamed for the first time in history outside of EWTN. Prayer services being live streamed. To this day, there's a Divine Mercy Chaplet that Steve Angrazano does online every single day at 3 o'clock. Eastern time, so 2 o'clock our time. But that there are hundreds and thousands of people that now tune into that because they didn't have that opportunity beforehand. But God has said, here, let's make lemonade out of lemons. Yes, COVID sucks. The flu sucks. People will die from it. People will get sick from it. But we cannot be afraid to live our lives. And that's where Satan comes in and, and tries to instill that fear and doubt in us on both sides of the equation. That unless you do this, you hate everybody. And if you do this, you hate everybody. Well, no, that's not true. <laughs> Nobody hates everybody. Sometimes we're just absent-minded. Whether you're a masker, non-masker, a vaxxer, non-vaxxer, doesn't matter. It's what do we do about it? How do we love those that are on the other side of the aisle? The problem, though, is we are in such a turmoil-driven society, specifically in the United States right now, politically, that we struggle to see God's love. In fact, I can't tell you how many people have come to me since I moved out here and said, Father, anytime that I see a Democrat or Republican, I've heard on both sides, all I want to do is just punch them in the face. It's like, what did they ever do to you? They were the wrong color. Huh. Sound familiar outside of politics? Well, to God, every color is right. To God, we are all creating this image and likeness. So where's this unfounded hate coming from? It's coming from Satan. It's coming from our inability to be rational, to be logical, to think things through. And it was instilled at us, as I said, at that little childhood age. How many times did you have a kid in class growing up that was the, the annoying kid that raised their hands, shut up, I want to go to recess. Stop talking, I want to, go, I want to leave. You guys have, you know, know those kids? A, that was me. But B, they learned in their childhood not to ask questions, to just go with the masses. And then we wonder why, as adults, we follow the masses. We become bandwagon fans. How many OU fans today were OU fans in the 90s? One. <laughs> Most, so, some were. But many times we fall under that bandwagon. Oh, Alabama's the team now, so we're going to have Alabama everywhere. Oh, they're having a bad year. They're going to go to Georgia. Oh, we're going to go to USC. Oh, we're going to go to Michigan. Never go to Michigan. No. <laughs> Notre Dame fan can't do that. But how many times do we not recognize the simplicity of our actions because we haven't made our actions intentionally. We haven't thought about the why. But ironically, that's at the heart of the proclamation of the gospel. Jesus Christ loves you. Why? Because. Because he is love, he loves you. He knows nothing different from love. He embraces nothing different than love. Next spring, we'll talk a little bit about purgatory, but when we look at purgatory, purgatory is not a punishment. Purgatory is a place to be purged from sin. Why? Because when you get to heaven, you're in the presence of God. 
And when we're in the presence of God, who is love, and sin who is the rejection of love, how can we both be with love and be against love at the same time? We can't. So we go to purgatory. To be cleansed by fire, just like you would at a smeltery, you'd go and you'd, you'd see a sword being made. How do they make it straight and flat? They put it under heat and they mold it. They burn off the excess. And so, yes, it can be painful, but so is change in this life. Change for us who have been set in our ways for so many years, it is painful. It is extremely painful. If you ever talked to someone that's been an addict, if you've ever been an addict of anything, changing from one thing and going to something else, it's not just a snap, in the, snap of the fingers. You have to be intentional. You have to be purposeful. You have to avoid those near occasions of sin. If you're an alcoholic, where do you not go? You probably won't go to the bar. Why? Because the temptation is right there for you. One drink can send you over the edge. If you're someone that struggles with a sex addiction, where should you not go? Probably don't go to Las Vegas, because it's everywhere, whether you want to see it or not. Don't put ourselves into places of temptation and expect God to just say, you'll be fine. God blesses each and every one of us but we have a role to play in that as well. God gives us free will, but we have to choose freely to follow the will of God or we'll follow the will of ourselves. So Jesus Christ loves you. No ifs, ands, or buts. He gave his life to save you. Now, we've been talking since really the first class we talked about um, on sin, and really the first class we talked about who, who is God, when we brought up Genesis chapter 15, the covenant between God and Abraham. Remember that? And we talked about how with the covenant that God made, the promise was, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sands of the seashore. If either party breaks their end of the promise, God says what? I will sacrifice myself. He doesn't say that in those words. He says, you can take my life. If you, when we look at the blood oath covenant, that's what it says. So when we look at why did Christ have to be crucified? Why did he have to freely choose this? Because God too has free will. God too could have said no, but he didn't. Did he doubt? I don't think he doubted. But he did question the why. And in the Garden of Gethsemane is where we see the biggest question of why ever. When Jesus is praying in the garden and the apostles have fallen asleep the first, second, and the third time. And he's there and he is in such agony and pain that he is sweating blood. I mean, I, I sweat a lot. I just don't sweat blood. I don't, I don't even know what that would be like. It was in such agony that he was sweating blood, and he said, Father, if it be your will, take this cup from my lips. Now, we talked a little bit this last weekend, because it was a really short homily this last weekend, a little bit this last weekend about what that cup was when James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came and said, can we sit at your left and right? And Jesus says, the cup that I'm to drink, you can't drink. No, we want to drink it. Okay. <laughs> That cup that he drank was a sacrificial cup of martyrdom. The Christ offered his life for the good of humanity. But even more in depth than that, he offered his life as the sacrificial lamb. You've heard that term before? We've heard the sacrifice of the mass. What's interesting is what happens on this altar every time we come to mass, we don't intentionally, visibly, normally see what's going on. But we see here at the altar the sacrifice of Christ for you and for me every time we come to Mass. When the bread and wine become the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ, we are hearkened back to that moment of the Last Supper, but also to that moment on the cross at Golgotha, the place of the skull. We enter into that moment, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. We enter into that moment when we join with the choirs of angels and saints singing, holy, holy, holy. We enter into his sacrifice, but why do we start the mass with a penitential rite? Just like the reason we don't go to heaven without going to purgatory unless we are cleansed of sin? Because we can't approach the altar unworthily. Because if we do, we are doing ourselves more harm ultimately than good. 
If we receive the Eucharist unworthily, it's a slap in the face to God. So has it been a while since I've been to confession? Go to confession. If I don't know if I need to go to confession or not, go to confession. If, if, if I've committed a lot of venial sins, I've cussed a lot, I flipped some on the bird, I sped, I, this is the smaller sins. Bring those to Mass at that moment when Father says, let us take a moment to call to mind our sins. Call to mind your sins. People have always asked me, Father, why do you spend so, time, so much time with your head down like that at that moment? Because I'm calling to mind my sins too, because I'm not perfect. I'm thinking, oh man, I shouldn't have had this conversation with this person that way. Man, I wasn't really good with this email, or man, I didn't respond to this email, or whatever it is. I cussed so-and-so out in my mind. Try not to say it out loud. Sometimes I do. But I bring that to that moment and say, Father, forgive me for I have sinned. Father, forgive me for I know not what I've done. Because we don't realize many times the witness that we give with our lips, it can either be a witness of this love of God, or it can be a witness of the God of the world, a witness of the God of doubt, a witness of the God of hate. And many times we don't realize that our words, we, we learned as kids again, sticks and stones may break my bones, but what? Names will never hurt me. Cyberbullying, it's all about names. Satan wants to convince you that your words don't have any power. They do. And that's why our kids are struggling today. It's because we were taught at our young ages that words really don't matter. Who is the word? Jesus Christ. It all flows together when we look at it intellectually. We just don't take the time to take a step back and think about it. That this all comes together. Words do matter because the word, the way, the truth, the life gave us everything that we have. And Satan wants us to dismiss it. He does it in such a cunning way. The cunning serpent that comes and slithers in our lives and we don't even recognize it. We don't recognize many times when we're gossiping. We don't recognize many times when we are talking bad about someone behind their back or to their face or in our heads. And we don't recognize that God is calling us to conversion every moment of every day because we have this universal call of holiness through our baptisms. And so when we enter into that moment of the mass, of the sacrifice, we have to ask ourselves, why did Jesus become incarnate in Mary? Why did Jesus live his life to the full? Why did Jesus offer himself for you and for me? It goes back to the sentence before that, because Jesus Christ loves you. Why? Because. So Jesus Christ loves you. He gave his life to save you. But this isn't the first time in history that we talk about a sacrificial lamb, is it? No. Where does the idea of the sacrificial lamb come from? Book of Exodus. When we look at Pentecost, not Pentecost, sorry. When we look at um, Passover, thank you. Sorry, my brain's still foggy. When we look at the Passover, we look at that time where the 12 tribes have gotten themselves into a mess in Egypt, married in with the Egyptians, and became slaves again. And Moses goes out after he kills an Egyptian. Remember, Moses is a murderer. Goes out and comes face to face with God in the fiery bush. This, this bush that's not consumed with fire. I would freak out or I'd try and go get a hot dog. I don't know what I would do, but I probably would not be like, Lord, this is you, unless he told me specifically, come forward, which he does. But I'd be like, anybody else seeing this? Did I trip on something this night? I mean, I, 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 it's crazy. But he goes and has this face-to-face -face with God in that burning bush. And God tells him what to do. He knows that Pharaoh's heart is hardened. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, both in class as well as in, in a homily. The hardening of Pharaoh's heart wasn't a difference from God's love. God loved him the same, but his heart was not made of butter, because that melts. It was made of clay which is ironic because what were the Egyptians doing? They were making bricks out of clay. Not coincidental. They're making bricks out of the hardness of their hearts towards God. This is part of their punishment. And so Moses comes and tries through the plagues to set them free. Finally, Pharaoh says, all right, go. And that last night, when they have the Pentecost, this is really where the book that I've been talking about the whole time, Jesus and the Jewish Rich of the Eucharist, really comes in handy. Again, if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. 
It is just fascinating. I can't go into all the details of the similarities between the Passover and Christ's passion, death, and resurrection, but there are so many correlations that if you pay attention, you can't even begin to try and miss. The sacrificial lamb who offered himself up for us. The blood of the lamb splattered on the door was why the angel of the Lord passed over. The blood of the lamb sacrificed on the altar is what gives us the ability to have salvation. We can't earn it. We can deny it, though. That Christ, when he came in his passion, death, and resurrection, and he gave his life to save us, did so the same way as that sacrificial lamb did at the Passover feast. If you've ever been to a Seder meal, it's beautiful, the history and the tradition that gets brought out in a Seder meal, which is the traditional meal that they celebrate the night before the Passover in the Jewish tradition. And sometimes, I think we've had one here in the past, um, and, and other parishes have had them. They are beautiful. Well, when I was in seminary at Conception Seminary in Northwest Missouri, they had a Seder meal every year on Holy Thursday. Beautiful. And we would always have the beginning of it because you'd always have whoever the youngest person in the room was would ask, what makes tonight different from every other night? Well, the person that had the speech there was the abbot. So it brought us back to like abbot and Costello moments. Father abbot, what makes tonight different from every other night? Um, and so they go through the history of why the Passover is so important. That we're passing over from an old way of life through a sacrifice offered for us to newness of life. But notice, in the original Passover, not everybody was happy. Everyone that left, a lot of them started to grumble. They had been saved from slavery, but they weren't sufficiently pleased. They grumbled against God. M Moses goes up the mountain, gets, gets the Ten Commandments, comes down and throws them down because he sees this heresy of pagan worship going on. So the first Ten Commandments got broken. Why? Because he was pissed off at everybody. They weren't following the rules. Goes back up the mountain, comes back down the Ten Commandments. They go on. More grumbling ensues, not because the Ten Commandments exist now, but because we at least had things to eat there. We had things to drink. We knew what we were getting. We didn't have to put our faith in God. We put our faith in our own abilities. So what does God say? Have faith in me. And bread came down from heaven, manna, the food of the angels, to feed them, to give them nourishment. And then pigeons, I don't know why they would ever eat a pigeon, but they ate pigeons. Is that squab? Is that what it's called? They had pigeons every night and bread every morning, and they were sufficiently satisfied. But just like you and I are never happy or never fulfilled, in this life, they continue to grumble, continue to grumble, continue to grumble. Moses, who had done this great thing, had helped the Exodus happen and had helped the Israelites through the Exodus journey, was never able to enter the promised land. He had to have been like the second son in the prodigal son story. Father, I've done everything for you. I gave up my life for you. What have you given to me? Lord, I did these things. I went and put my life on the line. I spent the last 40 years hearing the whining, complaining, and moaning of everyone here, and I don't get the reward? What? Now, for us, we'd be like, uh, no. They'd be like working with a company for 50 years, and at the end of it, you get a pat on the back. Thank you, good, well done, good and faithful servant. Get out. And we've seen companies that have done that. And we're like, what the heck is this? I've given my life for you. And I mean nothing to you. But that's not how Moses saw it. Why? Because his heart was made of butter, not of clay. And so what is our heart made of? We have to make sure that it is made of the love of God. Because if we don't, we won't see those small, insignificant moments in our lives that are actually very significant where God kind of comes in and gives us exactly what we need when we need it and where we need it. The problem, though, many times is we don't want what we need. And that's a struggle. But let's go back to it. Jesus Christ loves you. Why? Because he gave his life to save you. Why? Because you cannot save yourself. 
Nothing that I can do can earn my salvation. Nothing. But I can lose salvation depending on the way that I live. And now he is living at your side every day. We'll stop with that. How many times have you heard in your life that God has abandoned humanity? Has anybody ever heard that before? I see it all the time. If God really, and many times you won't see it in that specific verbiage, but you'll see it in the, if God really loved, then, you've heard those phrases? If God really loved me, then why would he allow this bad thing to happen? It's really the problem of evil. Many times is what we get stuck up in. If God really was who he said he was, there'd be peace on earth. God wants peace on earth. What are you doing about it? Oh, crap. We forget that we are God's hands and feet. Feet. Feet isn't a word. We are God's hands and feet in the world. And we're called to go out and proclaim the good news. The problem, though, is we're scared. We're like, but I, I don't want to be shunned at work. I don't want to be shunned at my own house. I don't want to be shunned with my family because I'm the only Catholic in my family or I'm the only one not Catholic in my family or my family is more Catholic than the Pope or because we've got some of those in, in, in the diocese. We've got some priests like that too. We aren't. <laughs> but the reality is God is calling each and every one of us to witness to his love, which means first we have to experience it. Think back for a moment. Close your eyes. Think back to the last time that you can remember God showing you that he loved you. And open your eyes when you've thought about it. Does anybody want to share any of those? You don't have to, but... Woke up this morning. Wake up every morning, Teresa. Yeah. When Beth gave him a ride to church. Yeah. Anybody else? For me, I mean, it happens all the time, but the most vivid one this week was that I didn't have a heart attack on Sunday like I thought I was having. I mentioned during Mass that my chest was really tight and I was having issues, and I seriously called the priest nurse and said, I think I'm having a heart attack, what do I do? Because um, I was having chest spasms, my arm, I tweaked my neck um, last week, and that happens, you sleep bad and wake up on the wrong side of the bed and you got a tweak in the neck, but it was worse than that because my whole arm had started twitching, and it's still twitching today. And my chest had started just spasming. He's like, oh my gosh, is this what a heart attack feels like? What do I do? And my doctor's like, no, no, no. Your spasming is on the outside of your ribs. You're not having a heart attack. You're just having nerve pain. Great. And when I look back at it, I actually say, great. I'm not dying today. And that may seem menial to some, but for me, it, it was a, is this my last day on earth? And I kind of had that, what have I not said? Who have I not talked to? Who have I not blessed today? And I came and I was this close to not celebrating Mass on Sunday here. I had talked to Kathy. We had gotten the book out for um, the celebration of the Eucharist in the absence of a priest. I was not going to come to Mass on Sunday, but when I found out it wasn't an immediate death, okay, I'm going to go celebrate Mass. But you probably noticed that Mass was a whole lot faster on Sunday than ever before. 52 minutes. But you'll also notice there was no incense. There was a five-minute homily. Even in Sayer, we got done in Sayer in 39 minutes. And I didn't come up from there because I had to grip the podium because the pain was so immense in my shoulder. And I could look at that and say, God, why did you curse me with this pain? No, I look at it and say, God, thank you for helping me to make it through it. Because then I went home and I crashed for the rest of the day. And I crashed all day on Monday, and I crashed most of the day yesterday, and I crashed this afternoon too, because I'm still in pain. And I can see that as an affliction given to me, or I can say, you know what? How do I offer this pain up? And so last Thursday, 
which was the one-year anniversary for my dad's death, and I was in pretty bad pain then. And the city's like, I don't know what to do. My doctor hasn't really responded back. I had just been put on muscle relaxers at that point. And I, I, I've always heard these glorious stories of muscle relaxers. Oh, Father, you're going to get so high. It's going to be amazing. You're not going to be able to move. Nothing. Nothing. It's like, seriously? I'm immune to... Really? But I'm put on these muscle relaxers and go to the pastoral center to, to go uh, have mass with my family. Because um, we went there in the cemetery right next to the Resurrection Cemetery is where my dad is buried. And so before Mass, I'm kneeling there with the congregation, didn't vest for Mass. I was kneeling there, and for the first time I said, first time in a while, I said, Lord, I am in pain. May this pain be good for someone. I offer this pain up for one of the souls in purgatory that may not have someone to offer prayers for them. And to me, it was one of those, wow, that's awesome. I preach about doing that all the time, but I rarely remember to do it. And then we celebrated Mass and the Archbishop was there. And then we went to the cemetery and prayed a rosary as a family. And as one of those, Lord, thank you so much for these blessings. I don't deserve to be in the family that I've been given. I look out and see the brokenness in society, the brokenness in many families in our own parish, the brokenness in the families of, in my own family, and I say, Lord, why did you choose me to be blessed? Because when I look at other families, for the longest time, I assumed every family was the same way as my family. Just like before I became a priest, I assumed everybody went to confession the same way. You don't. Everybody goes differently. And so I've had to learn how to, on the priest's side, receive that from different people. Some people I have to nudge. Okay, um, what sins do you want to ask for God's forgiveness today? I don't know. Okay. So that's, I'll just start to go and list some of the common ones. Have you missed Mass lately? Yeah, about three times. Okay. Um, what, have you taken the, Lord of the name of the Lord in vain? Eh, once or twice it was an accident. Okay. Well, have you cussed? Oh, yeah, I've cussed. Okay. Well, have you gossiped? Well, I haven't really gossiped. Have you talked about someone behind their back? Yeah, I've done that. That's gossip. Um, <laughs> and then just kind of break it apart. And there's some people that come in and, Father, forgive me for I have sinned. I have sinned five times against the first commandment, seven times against the third commandment, eight times against the... And so, so I've got to, kind of like when I used to work at Burger King, okay, what is a number six? What is a number five? What is a number three? I'm trying to remember the order, so to speak. So that then when I give the penance, because I try and give penance, not that fits the crime, but that will help us get out of the crime. So if someone comes in and has a habitual sin, my goal of the penance is to help you make a stride this time. If it's been, say, say you've been having this same addiction, whatever it is, for the last 50 years of your life, I will ask you to say an Our Father, a Hail Mary, and a Glory Be for yourself, and then for someone maybe, who may be struggling with that same addiction. Or if, if you're having struggles with your family, I may say, for the next two or three days, pray an Our Father for that person in your family. If you're struggling with different things, I may say, hey, how long was it last time between the time you went to confession and the first time that you fell? It was five hours. Your goal this time is five hours and five minutes. And that may look like a, really, five minutes? If you do that for 50 years and you go to confession every week, that five minutes turns into five weeks. And that makes a big difference because we're being more intentional. For me, I'm a competitive person. If someone gives me something that says I can't do it, I'm going to do my damnedest to make sure I can do it. You can't tell me I can't do that. That's not the society we live in. You tell me no, I say, I'll show you. And then I end up with a broken arm or a broken something else. But I did it! Because we are stubborn. But God is always living at our side. Every moment of every day, God is here with us. Do we invite him into our lives? Do we invite him into those moments of our life? Or do we only want him when we need him? Is he genie Christ or Santa Christ? I've used those terms before because that's how society treats Christ. Not as a savior, but as our, for lack of a better way to put it, as our sugar daddy. We go to him when we need something. But God is so much more than that. God wants to give us everything that we need. We just many times don't realize what we need, or we think we need more than we really do. So Jesus is living at your side every day to enlighten, to strengthen, and to free you. I'm going to start with the free you part. What are we slaves to? Ironically, this was in the first reading today. 
We're slaves to sin. We are shackled to our sin. Satan wants us, because of fear and doubt, to not talk about sin. Oh, Father, those are things we don't talk about. If you don't talk about them, you can't grow from them. Uh, Christopher West, who does a lot of things with theology of the body, um, and had uh, a, a lot of writings and um, audible things that came out after uh, Pope St. John Paul wrote Love and Responsibility, came and did a priest retreat for us at Quartz Mountain three years ago now, I think it was, three or four years ago. And he said, one of the struggles of habitual sin is we think that confessing it in the confessional is all we need to do. But that's actually not even step one. Because if we can go and talk about our habitual sins, those shameful things that we don't want to talk to anybody about in confession, that is good. But it stays there. It's like talking to yourself about it. If you really want to move out of it, you have to be, excuse me, you have to be intentional about doing something about it. So if I struggle with just the things that come pretty often, masturbation, pornography, sex addiction, um, cussing, alcohol, gambling, um, those are really the, the ones that are the biggest things that are out there that most people struggle with. If I struggle with any of those things and I can't even bring it to confession, we aren't just shackled. We are, we are like stuck. <laughs> we are shackled and we are falling into quicksand at the same time. If we can bring it to confession, we're just shackled. The quicksand isn't gone because we're at least trying to get somewhere. But how do we take those shackles off? Not those shackles, but the shackles. That didn't mean that, I promise. <laughs> how do we get rid of the shackles? No, 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 we want to keep the shackles here. But how do we get rid of those things in our lives that keep us from God? We have to try. We call it, again, practicing the faith, not perfecting the faith. That's why the sacrament of reconciliation is so prominent in my preaching, is because without the sacrament of reconciliation, we have no hope. Because we are stuck in sin. That can give me the graces I need to begin the process to work on those habitual sins. But again, that's just starting the process. What am I doing about it? Did you know, and we'll talk about this a little bit um, in a couple months, we're going to have a Safe Haven Sunday. Um, the diocese started about three years ago, talking about the struggles of pornography in our world today. Did you know that most kids by the age of, what do you think age-wise is the the normal age that a, that a male sees pornography for the first time? What do you think? Seven, 10, 11, about seven. And girls, what, time, what age do you think the girls normally come into contact with it? About the same, plus or minus a year, eight or nine. So by the age of nine, your children have been exposed to pornography. We don't talk about it because we don't want to. It's, it, it's just like talk, having the birds and bees talks. We don't want to have that conversation. Oh, it's just awkward. As a priest, you know how many times I've had to have that conversation? That I've gotten to the point when I was at the high school, hey, guys, I will talk to you about anything because we can't be afraid of those hard things to talk about because if we are, Satan wins because we won't even begin the conversation. That was part of the struggle with all the cover-ups in the church. With the priest abuse scandals, nobody talked about it. Everybody saw it, but nobody talked about it. Nobody did anything about it. We have then been participants in that sin if we knew something was happening and we didn't do anything about it. We can no longer allow that to happen in our lives because God lives beside us and he loves us and doesn't want us to turn from him. But things like pornography, things like masturbation, things like um, adultery, those are so much more prevalent in our world than we want to admit. By the age of 35, the last statistic I saw, 72% of men and 57% of women have an addiction to pornography. Looking in here, that would mean of the 50 or so that are in here, statistically, about 30 of you guys have had or will have or do have an addiction to pornography. What are we doing about it? What, do we talk about it? Well, no, Father, those, those are shameful things to talk about. I can remember, and this is me going to confession out loud, when I was a kid, I didn't, I was growing up during dial-up internet, 
didn't know what I was doing, back when instant messenger chat was like the AOL chat, and my parents came home one time when I was, after I was home by myself, and they found a screensaver that was um, a little sultry. Didn't realize what I had done, because again, I was probably 10, 11 years old, didn't know what I was looking at. My parents called me in, Danny, what is this? What is what? Turn the computer on, and there's a cowgirl there, wearing cowboy boots and a hat, and nothing else. My parents love to tell this story. And I said, I, 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 I don't know how it got there. Uh-huh. I, I really don't because I'm not computer savvy. But it was one of those things that at that moment I realized, ah, this is something that's visible in the world that we don't talk about it. My parents never talked to me about it then after. So when I had classmates that were bringing things around, when they had penthouses and playhouses, playhouses, penthouses and playboys, or they had J.C. Penney's catalogs, or whatever they were using back then, nobody talked about it. It was always secret, it was always shameful. We didn't realize how big of an issue it would be. And if you see our society today and how many marriages are broken because of pornography, it is astounding. So there's a movie that came out in the early 2000s that addressed this. I realize I'm going a little off topic. Called Fireproof. Has anybody ever heard of it? Highly recommend watching it. It's about, it's a Kirk Cameron movie when he was going through his whole um, conversion in his own life. So after growing pains. And he was um, playing a fireman in this movie, and he had an addiction to pornography. And he found this book um, that was like, his wife was about to leave him because of his strong addiction to pornography. It was a 40 days of how to change your life, blah, 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 something like that. And he found this book. And by the end of it, kind of ruining the story, but not really. It's been out for almost 20 years. Um, by the end of it, he realizes that the book that he was given by his father wasn't because his father had the issues, it was because his mother had the issues. And it's one of those that, wait, women struggle with this too? Huh. But how many times do we go out in the world and forget the fact that we are objectifying each other, not seeing each other as the image of God, but instead of, how can I use your image? And that's a struggle that many people have. So we've got to talk about it. We've got to have those conversations, and that's not really what this is about today, but those are kind of the things that we don't recognize God standing by us to strengthen us. We don't see how he's trying to free us. But there are so many opportunities out there for us to turn our lives over to God. And it's not a once saved, always saved thing. Every day, we have to work in salvation. We have to work with the love of God. So he strengthens us, he frees us, and he enlightens us. Ultimately, we begin to see what is right and what is wrong. When you have been enlightened, when you have grown in wisdom and understanding, we not only see right from wrong, we begin to choose more right from wrong. But it takes time, it takes intentionality. I still struggle with sin. I still have habitual sins. I cuss a whole lot more than I should. I gossip a whole lot more than I should. But I'm working on it. And by saying that out loud, I'm not saying, oh, look at Father, he's a horrible sinner. No, I'm just recognizing that I am a sinner. Because we need to recognize that to ourselves because we cannot be saved until we recognize that our sins keep us from salvation. But God doesn't want you to be a victim. God doesn't want you to be in pain. He wants you to be free. He wants you to be loved because he ultimately is love. So we've got about five minutes left. What questions do you guys have about the kerygma, proclamation of the faith, anything we've done kind of leading up to now? Just like high school kids. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, see, and that's what it was, was, so different generations have different versions of pornography. It used to be the JCPenney's catalogs, where you'd have the women that were scantily dressed or in bras and panties. Then it went to Playboy and Penthouse. Now, it's being subvertly put into our children's entertainment. Shows like The Big Bang Theory, shows like Friends, I love watching those shows as an adult. 
it's nothing but talking about sex and adultery. That's all the shows are. But trying to put it into something else. Again, I love those shows. But Friends talks about having multiple lovers, having people sleeping around. So does Big Bang Theory. A lot of these shows we have. But not only that, even in kids' shows. If you go back and watch some of the Disney movies that we grew up on, they are terrifying as an adult sometimes. It's like, how did they get away with that? Well, because nobody's... Nobody really recognizes because they would watch it with our kids. But nowadays, the number one place where kids find pornography is on YouTube or on Snapchat or on TikTok. All the things with, oh, yeah, my, my kid's got a Snapchat. It's cool. No. No child should have Snapchat. No child should have TikTok. Oh, it's innocent. No, it's not. <laughs> I've seen how that has gone bad in the high school over and over and over. That's where the nude selfies come in all the time because you can delete them until someone takes a screenshot of them and then it gets passed around the whole school. Happened twice while I was at McGinnis. When we have the conversation with the kids day one of public and permanent, we ask the question, when is it appropriate to sext your boyfriend or girlfriend? I kid you not, one of the ninth graders said, when I know that he loves me. I said, wrong answer. The same answer I had when that same class of freshman boys, because we split them up for their freshman retreat, the senior girls and senior boys talked about the freshman boys and the freshman girls, and I came and sat in on those. And I walked in to the, to the, the boys' class and was asking one of the senior boys, the last question was, how do I get with a girl? I said, I got this one. That question right there is why you will probably have a divorce and your wife will never trust you. And they were like, yeah, because if you're just getting with someone, how would you feel if someone just got with your future wife and treated her like nothing more than just a play toy? How would you feel if your wife didn't trust men because of someone acting that way towards them or that the person that you've acted like that with now can never have a sustained marriage or a sustained relationship because they've never been treated like a proper woman or on the other side they've never been treated like a proper man oh now that lasted for about five minutes and then went on but it was a we have to plant those seeds in the children's minds that we have to treat each other as children of god the problem, though, is all they see in the world is everything but. On TV, on social media, on the radio. I switch the radio station so many times because it's like, what does this have to do with what's going on? Some of the things that I listen to on the radio, it's like, how did this make it through the, uh, what is it, the FCC? How did it make this through the FCC and certain other things don't? What? Or some of the music that the kids listen to. Holy crap, some of the music the kids listen to. Please, parents, do not let your kids listen to certain songs. I loved rap growing up. Again, I'm, I'm confessing here. One of my favorite concerts I ever went to was Genuine, Ludacris, and Monica. It was a straight-up rap concert. Loved it. Looking back, it's like, I cannot believe that I listened to that music. Oh, my gosh. It's all about sex, it's all about drugs, it's all about hooking up. Some of the songs, I, I had to censor the songs that were played at volleyball, basketball, and football games at the Catholic high school, because the kids got to choose the music. No! Oh, but it's just noise to us. Yes, but it's talking about doing this and this and this. I had to censor the boys' locker room because they would listen to such horrible rap music that would throw racial slurs in every other word. What are you thinking, coach? Oh, that's what the kids need to grow up. Nope, the kids just need to grow up and you need to show them how to. Give them some Vince Gill or give them some Garth Brooks. Some of it. Some of it. But give them something that can lead them to God and not lead them to sin. On that, we're at times, so we're going to go ahead and end prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Good and gracious God, we give praise and thanksgiving to you for this day. We thank you for sending your Son to offer himself and sacrifice himself for our sins, that we may have the ability to reunite with you in heaven. We pray that when we leave from here, we may take these lessons that you continue to work on our hearts and put them into practice. You may help us to see you. You may help us to be unshackled by sin. 
which may help us to better embrace your love so that we may rest in your peace. We ask all these things in your son's name, for he lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. See you guys next time. Ooh.